Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Narson. World Champs Week, or actually four days really, it's already come and gone. In Imola, the 2020 World Championships, we just watched the men's road race. This podcast is going to be talking about the men's and women's road race. Men's won first. Benji said some pretty spicy things on Twitter already, angering his own nation. I'm worried for him. I've told him I can't get over there. I've got no diplomatic passport um, to help him out in Belgium if people turn up with pitchforks at his door in West Vlaams. So with that being said, let's get into the race today. Once again, just like the, it's the same circuit that the women had or same across both the men and women's race, it's hard. It's a really hard circuit. And I think someone mentioned to me that uh, Simon uh, Pello for, he's not Spanish, Simon Pello, um, Swiss rider who was helped out with the design of the course in Egel and Martigny in Switzerland, he said that this course was harder. And that was a hard course, the Egel and Martigny one. So just a reminder, Nine laps for the men, 258 kilometres long, two major climbs, but also a third sort of uncategorised one called the Bergulo in each lap. The first of the climbs was the Matolano, 2.2Ks at 7.1%. That's steep at the start, then flattens out at the end. Second climb and the last climb before the finish, which is about crest, about 12Ks from the finish is the Chima Galisterna, 2.3Ks at 7.3%. So similar length, similar gradient, but the Galisterna starts off easier and then is quite steep at the end. So it's certainly looking like it was going to be a launch pad for attacks in the finale. Um, but yeah, very, very hard course. I think over 5,000 metres of climbing. Fortunately, there was no rain today. I believe there was a bit of a headwind on the descent into the finish, about 12Ks of undulating descent into the finish before a few Ks on the, on the uh, not a velodrome, the autodrome in Imola. But, yeah, Benji, why don't you run through what happened sort of in the first, I don't know, five hours or so before the the, uh, the favourites really kicked off. Did you Were you expecting anything to happen from afar? No, not exactly. I wasn't expecting a far attack from like 170 kilometers or anything. I was mainly thinking it would end up starting where the usual World Championships start, whereas around 80 to 60 kilometers where the first signs of attacks and moves start to happen. And it kind of felt like that. Nonetheless, obviously, we had a breakaway early on in the stage, including Koch, Jonas Koch, the German. He is uh, usually a sprinter, if I recall correctly, but He's a bit of a hilly sprinter as well sometimes, so he was able to uh, perform quite well in this breakaway, so props to him. Thorsten Tran for Norwegia. <laughs> That's not a country. <laughs> Norway. 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 <laughs> the Norway. Anyway. <laughs> Friedrich for Austria. We've got Fomenik for Kazakhstan. Arashira for Japan. Grosu for Romania. And Castillo for Mexico. To be honest, these breakaway riders were the first sign of the fact that in the peloton, there was going to be some attrition. We had a lot of people that abandoned throughout the race, and we saw that in the breakaway as well, where riders really couldn't follow at certain points, and we ended up with like four or five riders pretty easily, with early drops being, well, I think it was Friedrich early on, dropped back, Grosso as well. I think the last two were Koch and Tran, and Arashiro was the, uh, the third man left in that breakaway. But the story in this World Championships is not about the breakaway. We know that. One of the funniest things throughout the parkour was the fact that um, Soler was reportedly abandoning 
And then about 10 minutes later, he was riding there. So apparently he didn't abandon and he was still in the peloton. So apparently the race tracker was wrong on that part. But when the real race opened up, we are, well, a bit before that, we saw two teams that were controlling the pace quite well in the peloton, keeping the breakaway on around six to five minutes. And that was mainly Belgium and Switzerland, Switzerland for Hirschi, Belgium for Fanat. And one thing I really noticed early on is that they were clearly going for Van Aert today, which I was hoping for in the preview. And I was doubting whether they would because Belgium always makes some mistakes in regards to which leader they go for. They try and go for two people or three people sometimes. But this time around, they had a clear leader in mind. It was Van Aert and they wanted to go all out for him. And in the end, that might have turned out well, might have turned out not well. But first of all, the first movements, the actual movements in the peloton, but not actually from Switzerland or Belgium. We had some pacing by Belgium, and we saw that by the fact that, for example, the early two guys of the Belgian tactics were Steven and Nassen, and Nassen dropped in about fifth last round somewhere, then came back to the front based on the plateau section between the climbs, and then dropped fully. This exactly the same happened to Steven, so it looked like it was a repetitive strategy there. But suddenly the French were there. The French started with around 70 kilometers to go in the third last lap. Yes, that's correct. The third last lap on one of the two hills. I think it was on the second one, the Chimo Galisterno. Is that the, is that the right name? Uh, yeah, Fletcher Wallonia and Chima Galisterno, <laughs> the correct pronunciations. It was interesting from France doing that with Quentin Pacher, who I think is out of contract. He's on his Pro Conti rider with BNB. You guys all know him from us talking about him in the Tour de France, out of contract. Another pretty good performance today. And I think Nans Patez was pacing as well, the Ajudua Le Mondial rider. The favourites, uh, we mentioned, I think, on the preview podcast, but just a reminder, obviously fr- uh, France were pacing for or riding today for Alaphilippe. Denmark for Fulsang, Italy, unclear, Baglioli, Nibali, Etiol, uh, Ulissi, but Ulissi got dropped pretty early. Uh, Slovenia, that remains to be seen, and we'll get to that in a second. They obviously had Pogaccia and Roglic, both favourites for the race, but it was unclear before the race who was going to be their main man or whether there was not going to be really a set strategy. Um, but yeah, why did you think France were pacing with 70Ks to go Benji, like it's it's one thing to pace hard in the last lap and just torch it before the final climb, but yeah, why was seventy k's to go? Because I felt like they they did that with Nans Pitez and Pacher and then kind of stopped. Yeah, I think they tried to make the race a bit more difficult until they came at the moment where an early attack of a group might come up, and we saw that pretty much because Pacher was launching like crazy. Honestly, props to that guy yeah. Nans Pitez as well. After that. They, they they dropped like half the group at that point. I'm, I'm not even kidding. And the early drops were not really riders that were dangerous for the whole race or something. I didn't expect any of the people that dropped at that point to actually make it towards the end. Surprisingly, Nibali was, uh, was still in the peloton there after seeing his Tereno form. So I'm really happy that he looks better for the Giro today. I'm really happy about that. Just wanted to point that out. But after Bashir and Nance Pitaz did their job, we had a bit of a, a slower pace, but it wasn't too slow because we had an attack coming up by, well, a nation you named there, Slovenia, and it was Tadej Pogacar, the winner of the Tour de France. He attacked with about 42 kilometers to go. And, well, we viewers were like, oh God, Pogacar's attacking on the Galisterna again. So, well, what is this? How are we going to solve this? 
he's a great climber. He can actually do something like this. But on the other end, we had Belgium trying to really counter that in the peloton. So you've got a whole train of Belgians at the front of the peloton trying to close that down. And I found it a great strategy. And that is because they didn't really use the riders that you would need in the last 30 kilometers yet. They were focusing mainly on a Stuyven, a Loic Fliegen, those lads that aren't necessarily Wellens going to survive too. the next climb. Yeah, Wellens, but I was expecting Wellens to survive a bit longer than, for example, a Jasper Stuyven, which indeed was the case. Loic Fliegen also did an amazing work for Belgium. They kept um, Pogacar at about 22 seconds, sometimes 10 seconds again, then back to 15, then back to 25, then 27 for a second. We were starting to get, to get worried, but then we were at the point with about 25-ish kilometers to go, just into the last round where we saw that Spain and Belgium were both really pushing it at that point, and that is on the second last climb where, well, Mr. Pogacar actually got caught, and well, I'm going to give it to you there because uh, we've got a lot of attacks yeah, from that well, I want to say there's a few things that are really interesting about that Tadej Pogacar attack. First off, it was a legit move, and I think it was they, they attacked with him for two reasons. I think the primary reason was to be a reverse lead out for Roglic. Belgium, just before he'd attacked, had been pacing with a, I would say, a controlling pace. It wasn't a pace to drop people because Belgium's strategy was, hey, if we just ride super easy and we all come together, we don't care if it's a 150-man peloton at the finish, <laughs> well, Vanal's going to win that sprint. So they were happy to just ride a controlling pace and not too much apart from France, that dalliance before had really happened, um, except bringing the break back, but there were no real favourites or threatening riders in there anyway. So the Pagatra attack, I think, was to weaken Belgium. It kind of worked. It was quite effective. It made them expend their resources maybe earlier, a bit earlier than they wanted to, and that would have been in aid of Roglic. And also it obviously was, okay, well, maybe if no one chases, he can get a big gap, and you know we saw what he did in the Tour de France. Uh, it's obviously not just purely a, a sacrificial attack, but I have to say that suggested to me that they were riding for Roglic today as their main leader. Um, I'm not saying that Pegacci was a domestique of sorts. He was still attacking himself for the win if he could, but yeah, the way the order in which they used the two, those riders suggests that Roglic was their main man today. And when he did attack, he dropped Ulysses. He was getting dropped. Uh, yeah, as you said, Fliegen was dropped. Michael Matthews was looking pretty good. And it was actually Tom Dumoulin, I think, just before Pagacha got brought back, who like tried to bridge across to him. Uh, pretty smart move from Dumoulin, actually. Like He's not going to win the sprint. And maybe if he was able to bridge across to Tade, they could work together on the climb or whatever and yeah, actually make something happen. But, yeah, it wasn't... Belgium were pretty strong today, I have to say. The Belgians were rode really, really well. Um, and then it was Vincenzo Nibali who looked really good. There was a short descent before the final climb and a little bit of a plateau section before the final climb of the Chima, uh, when it was Galisterna. And some interesting attacks formed, and I thought, uh, I thought a larger group was going to go away, and I'm kind of surprised one didn't. It was obviously because I, I can't. It's hard to say which team was pacing, but Nibali basically attacked on that descent. I thought, here we go again. Wild Van Aert was marking him, and Wild Van Aert basically took up the responsibility for marking everybody that went near the front from like 20Ks onwards, the second Pogacar got brought back. Um, 
Dimps, like that included Damiano Caruso, the Bahrain McLaren Italian rider. I believe he sort of counted when Dumoulin got and Pagaccia got brought back and Walfenaut was kind of marking him. All the favourites were lingering at the front. Uh, Alaphilippe, Richard Carapath started getting pretty active there as well. Nibali obviously was so on the front on that descent but wasn't really able to get too much separation. And then in that pla- uh, valley, just before the final climb, there were loads of attacks. Uh, Carapaz, Guillaume I believe, uh, was getting involved. Rigoberto Uran, I think. And that all made sense because this is one of your last chances. Hey, get a little bit of a gap and try and make it onto the climb in a reduced group that doesn't involve Walfanard or Michael Matthews or pre- preferably Julian Alphilippe as well. And yeah, try and actually hope that the other teams, the other favourites, don't have the strength to bring you to bring you back. But that didn't really, nothing really eventuated. Um, Tom Pidcock had been dropped at that point. Luke Rowe had been doing a pretty good job for him for Great Britain, and it was pretty much the entirety of the favourites all in the front thirty riders uh, when they went on to that final climb. With Belgium still pacing, um, I think with Greg Van Avermaet. Uh, yeah, Greg Van Avermaet was pretty much the last man. I think with 13.1 k's to go. But again, as I said, they weren't pacing too hard. And yeah, did you think, did you see he or she drop his water bottle, Benji? So Mark Hirschi, Swiss rider, he dropped his water bottle, threw it away, and then he attacked pretty early on that final climb. And I don't know, it was, it was kind of an, it was an attack, but then he saw Wildfanart was on his wheel and just kept kept drilling it and he he basically that was the move which dropped pretty much everyone except the domestiques or helpers it was just the favorites at that point do you think if you're say i don't know her he or she's coach in your ideal world benji would you be saying attack at the base of the galastana or would you given that alaphilippe and wafanat are there or what what would your strategy have been if you were he or she that's a bit difficult because we've got a situation where we probably did not expect Alaphilippe to have an engine like that towards the end of this hill. So at that moment, if you think about the form that was in the Tour de France, here she was probably thinking, I can definitely try and do this, try and see uh, early on in the climb and see what works. On the other end, he probably shouldn't have done that because he... Yeah, he's not really the kind of guy that I would expect launching the first attack. He probably wanted to drop a Wout van Aert indeed, but yeah, Wout van Aert was pretty easy to respond to that. So I was more expecting, if the like genuinely, before the race started, the only person that I would expect to be able to drop van Aert on these hills today would be an Philippe in good form. And at that point on the climb, I didn't really expect Hirschi to drop van Aert, so... Yeah, it's a bit difficult. Maybe Hirschi was hoping that it would work, but if you were the leader of Hirschi, I'm I'm not sure what you could say to him because waiting till the end, well, it might have been better for him, but on the other end, you, you can never expect what is going to happen on a hill like this in the last kilometers of a world championships, to be honest. I mean, I'll give you... I know I'm, I'm really like nitpicking here, but I think you see the difference between a Tour de France breakaway where he is the superior rider in the break and he can just step off people when he wants to and go clear on his own and then you can't just do the attack with the same abandon when you've got Wild Van Aert, Alaphilippe all staring at you. Um, 
I think a better case of what he did, a really good example of the different strategy is what he did on stage two Tour de France when he was just laser-focused on Julien Alaphilippe's back wheel and followed his attack, although he did have to close it down on his own. Um, this is a different climb, though. It's very steep, to be honest. I expected the way they'd raced it. Of course, Alaphilippe was going to have to attack on this climb. We saw on Poggio in the steeper section there, not as steep on the Poggio as this climb was, but still on the steeper section on Poggio, barely anyone could, well, no one could follow him. He crested it on his own while Fanart caught him on the descent. So, yeah, I think it was interesting for me to see that people were riding at a high pace or attacking before Alaphilippe did anything. And then it was after Hirschi increased the pace, there was a group of favourites. You had Schachmann, Fulsang, Alaphilippe, Van Aert, uh, Kwiatkowski, Hershey, might be missing someone, my apologies, Roglic as well, he's obviously there for Slovenia, and Kwiatkowski went with 17 k's to go, still maybe halfway up the climb in the drops, and Michael Matthews had missed that move, this then drops Schachmann, and seems to put pretty much everyone on their limit when Kwiatkowski was on the front, it uh, looked to me like everyone was on their limit. While Van Aert was yeah, just holding onto his wheel, definitely wasn't thinking about attacking at this point. Then Julian Alphilippe, second wheel on Kwiatkowski, massive attack uh, before the crest of this climb on the steepest section in a really big gear. And if you look at the overhead shot, I think UCI tweeted it, the video. He just You can see the separation he gets on the other riders. And then it's still quick. You know that everyone's kind of cooked, right? Because... When you look at who's chasing, zero, pretty much zero reaction. People kind of, I think Fulsang fanned out a bit into the middle of the road, but didn't really gain on, didn't like move up any wheels or positions on the chase. And it was still Wavana sitting on Kwiatkowski who was trying to bring it back. Um, so yeah, Alaphilippe just in magic form, maybe on these climbs, on these sort of steep finales, he looks like he's the best in the world. Um, especially after 200 Ks. He should be the favourite for Liège, best on Liège later this year. Um, yeah, what did you – were you surprised that Alaphilippe was able to get such a gap, Benji, or was it even a big gap? Like, I'm not sure if we who had our stopwatch, who was supposed to have the stopwatch today, but, yeah, was it even that big a gap over the crest? And then, remember, we've got 12 Ks into the finish of pretty much rolling descent. Well, it wasn't really a big gap. It was nine seconds, but you know that from that crest onwards you've got – a bit of a descent, and you've got a bit of a plateau section and some more descent towards the uh, actual Imola circuit then in the last three to four kilometers. So you could say it was not really a big gap, but the issue is that you've got a chasing group, like you mentioned, that has Wout van Aert in it. So if you're anybody else in that group, you're going to be like, well, if we bring van Aert to that Alaphilippe rider up front, then Wout van Aert wins this. So we'll be fighting for seconds. So I might as well just sit up and fight for a second anyway and maybe have a bigger chance of beating Van Aert. Is that an illogical way of thinking or do you think that people should all... I believe that people should always go for the gold prize, but that's not how a world championship works, obviously, because you've got that silver medal that's worth something as well. So I believe that riders that don't think they could beat Wout Van Aert were definitely thinking, well, maybe, uh, maybe this is not a good idea to work so well here. No, I don't think that's what happened. I think people are missing one very important point about this. 258-kilometer race, 5,000-meter circuit. Benji, you said it's a race of attrition, and 
Julian Alphilippe has stepped off them after he or she had attacked while Van Aert had closed it down. Maybe while Van Aert had done a little bit too much closing people down from 20Ks onwards. He or she had attacked, Kwiatkowski had attacked, and then Alaphilippe had attacked, reducing the group to a very, very select group of favourites, and they were on their limit. So just bear in mind with all the discussions about what should have happened in the chase that they were on their limit. That's everyone in the group, some more than others. I think Kwiatkowski was still looking okay, and he recovered a little bit. He or she was okay on the descent pass, but not really much help otherwise. Full saying, hard to say. I don't feel like he was pulling very strongly, but he was trying at least, and he was able to roll through and at least participate. Wavanaut obviously was able to recover a little bit towards the end, uh, and was pulling strongly then. But at the crest, Wavanaut was obviously, I think, very, very tired and at max. If he could have followed Philippe, he would have. He followed him in Milano Sanremo on the Poggio and then got dropped. This was an even steeper climb today, much, much steeper. Um, so I don't think there's any anything where Wavanaut's like, oh, no, I'll just I'll let Alaphilippe go and then Kwiatkowski will pull this back uh, just after the crash, etc. But nine seconds at the crest, 12Ks into the finish of downhill and some flat sections as well. I believe there's a mild headwind. I still think they should have brought, they should have been able to bring Alaphilippe back. Um, now, maybe the descent, Alaphilippe did pretty well in the descent today. But, yeah, the, the chase just didn't work very well. And it was cutting between Alaphilippe and the chase a lot. And But here's my take on what was happening in the chase. Wavanaut pulling really strongly, so not just pulling for probably longer and more turns, but also actually pulling and and making an inroad into that gap to Alaphilippe. Kwiatkowski pulling short turns, but leaving no gaps and rolling through. Fulsang much the same too. Here she was cooked, and Kwiatkowski actually eventually stopped letting him roll through, and he was sitting on the back here she for a while, so... I'm not sure Hiroshi was much help, except for the really technical descent sections. Roglic, here's the debate, right? So, oh, actually, we'll say what happens, actually. We'll get to the debate because that'll, that'll go on for ages because it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's raging over Twitter. The, the chase isn't able to make too much of an inroad, and they get into the circuit. 1.6Ks to go. Alaphilippe has a gap of about 16 seconds. They're on the autodrome circuit. And they chase pretty much gives up. And it looks like Alaphilippe's not that far ahead, but it's a big F1 circuit. Like he was actually 15 or 16 seconds ahead. And Alaphilippe cruises over the line after a masterful attack, a really, really nice aggressive descent. And yeah, it's just so strong, Alaphilippe. Looks magic today and uh, wins the world champs pretty easily uh, with a 24 second gap. While Van Aert then leads that group over the line and they'd been cat and mousing for a kilometre or so. And just dust them off in the sprint. Here she takes the bronze while Van Aert second. And I think Fulsang fourth and Roglic fifth. But so, yeah, congrats to Alaphilippe. We're obviously going to have this discussion about the chase, Benji. But I think both of us probably want to say Alaphilippe was the strongest rider today and he deserved to win. He put it on the line, magic attack. And um, yeah, it was, it was beautiful to watch, especially after Milano San Remo, where Juan Van Aert pipped him. Yeah, is there going back to the chase, Benji? What, what's being said in Belgium about it? Because um, apparently it's raging over there. 
Yeah, but I do want to clarify that it's not all Belgians saying this because every single time that this pops up, everybody's like, well, Belgians are sore losers, but I'm Belgian and I'm not saying it. But in general, the whole idea is the fact that we've got Wout van Aert in that chasing group, Primoz Roglic in that chasing group. We've got two people that are on the same team normally, and Wout van Aert has worked for three weeks for Primoz Roglic. So basically the... Sports uh, commentators, which is the uh, Belgian TV channel where we watch the cycling, national TV channel, it started to imply, the uh, co-commentator started to imply that Roglic should work for Wout van Aert to try and repay what he has done for weeks. And that's in general what the whole country, except for like a few people that do actually watch cycling normally, <laughs> don't want to offend anybody that has another opinion but i completely disagree with that standpoint so in general the point stands people here some people here think that roglic should have been working for wout van Aert in that chasing group because he needs to repay what wout van Aert has done in the tour de france and firstly i completely disagree and the reason is simple it's a world championships that's not how it works according to the uci rulebook that's basically cheating if you uh, start working for someone else of another, of another team, obviously you can always pretend that you're not intelligent and writing for yourself until you don't have enough energy to do it yourself. But everybody knows you would be working for, uh, for Wout van Aert if Roglic just started pacing fully in that chasing group, fully at the front. One, I don't think Roglic could have done that. He didn't exactly look like he was in extremely good form today. And secondly, he probably could have worked a tiny bit more in the group itself, but not necessarily for Wout van Aert. I believe that Roglic was clearly the rider that did the least of that chasing group, so to make it fair for the others in the group, he should have been helping as much as them. Then again, if he was tired enough from the climb, we can expect that, yeah, he possibly can't. But again, people would expect that Roglic would be pacing the whole time in that chasing group for Wout van Aert, and I disagree with that, because that's not how World Championships work. Yeah, I agree. I think it'd be ridiculous to just see Roglic. Well, A, I agree. There's no way he's going to be able to actually make an inroad into Alaphilippe. But B, it would just look so stupid if he was pacing on the front 100% for, for Wafanat and then pulling off, blowing up and giving up any chance of a medal, particularly after Tadej Pogacar had sacrificed, I think, in part, his ambitions for Roglic's leader for Slovenia today. So he just couldn't. He couldn't have done that. Um, my big issue is I got no problem with Hershey because he wasn't really trying to pull through. Kwiatkowski sort of stopped him rotating. My biggest issue with what Roglic did today in the chase was he he actively hampered it and made it worse. I got no problem if you're kind of if you're cooked and the the best you can do is just sit on, but you can't help the chase. That's fine. Just sit at the back. Uh, and rest up for the sprint. That's that's racing. Sit at the back and, but he Roglic kind of acted as if he was like a, a French teammate. He would get in. He was in the pace line. He was letting big, pretty big gaps go to the wheels in front of him, and then he'd like barely pull through or wait to be flicked through for ages, um, and was just hampering the chase. And then he was he'd do that for one rotation. And then not pull through at all for the next one, leading like when Kwiatkowski, I think, had moved back. 
to be like, are you pulling through or not? He just, he seemed to me to be really hampering the chase. So it wasn't just that he didn't have the legs to help it too much. He was involved in it and, yeah, I just think was slowing it down significantly, eventually to the point where Kwiatkowski didn't let him pull through anymore. Uh, Kwiatkowski rotated the back and said, no, you stay there at the back. Me, Fulsang and Wafanat will pull because you're not, partic- you're not helping very much. So that's my uh, major issue with it. I think yeah, it's clearly a mistake that they rode because they used Pogaccia in that way uh, and rode for Roglic. I guess they maybe they thought that was fair after the Tour de France. Um, it'd be interesting if Roglic had won yellow, whether Pogaccia would have been the man they were riding for last. I'm not mad that Pogaccia attacked when he did. It certainly made the race more interesting. But wouldn't it have been fantastic to see could Tade Pogaccia, if there was one man who could have followed Alaphilippe's attack, on the Galisterna, the last pinch of it, when Alphalete went, I think Tadej Pogacar could have been that man if he'd been fresh and rested. Obviously, he'd after his uh, breakaway attempt, he was done. Um, but yeah, do you think? Do you think that Slovenia made a mistake not riding for Pogacar, Benji? Aside whether it's fair or not, I don't care about fairness. The life ain't fair. Tadej Pogacar is a better racer than Primoz Roglic. Do you think they should have? Written for him, or do you think no one today could have followed Alaphilippe at all? I don't think Pogacar would have been able to follow Alaphilippe just from the way he attacked. It looked like he wouldn't be on that level because he didn't seem to be at his best either, even with that attack. His attack wasn't the strongest. He got 10 seconds on that on that attack, and Benoit was able to keep that at 10 seconds without actually doing too much because... I want to talk about Benoit a bit later because he is the MVP for Belgium here for me. But in the end, I do want to um, I do want to say that I don't think Pogacar would have been able to follow Alaphilippe because Alaphilippe's acceleration was just mad. And it's his typical acceleration, but the thing is that on longer climbs, we don't see that too often because we, we kind of expect it at the end of the climb and usually he gets dropped before the end of the climb in the Tour de France. So... Yeah, we haven't seen it too much since the second stage of the Tour de France, but it looked like he had it today. And I'm I'm kind of happy that Alaphilippe had that attack because Alaphilippe is a rider that has put cycling on the map as much as Sagan has a bit in the last year. Definitely last year with the Tour de France and such. His career has been pretty amazing from the get-go. He started off with that, um, I think it was in America, uh, California win, I'm not sure. But yes. afterwards, he built that up, built that up. The Hill Classics, then in Grand Tour, started to work with that. And he's really put himself on the menu in cycling and has given a enthusiastic look for the youngsters as well in France and so forth. He's a good person to represent the sport for me. And I believe that he's a deserving winner. He was the best man on the road today. That is clear the parkour suited him perfectly. but. We didn't expect really that he would be able to do this due to the fact that in the last weeks of the Tour de France, he looked a bit weaker. But I'm glad he won because he he represents this he represents the sport well, in my honest opinion. So yeah, I'm glad he won. But I do want to go back to uh, what I said earlier about Benoit and so forth. Do you in general feel like the Belgian tactics could have been different and could potentially have led to a different final? Or do you think that Alaphilippe was just plainly too strong for Raoult Fanard or anything related to the Belgian team there? I think the Belgian tactics were so close to perfect that they 
there's really nothing to criticise except for maybe Wafana being a little bit too aggressive before the Gallistown had even started, chasing down the likes of Carapaz and Nibali, etc. Maybe he could have relaxed a little bit uh, before the actual climb because he, he'd been chasing down people for five or six kilometres and maybe... Maybe, yeah, maybe he then only loses five to six seconds to Alaphilippe on the climb and then he's a bit fresher to punch the descent because I think Wavanat was tired on that descent. He was trying his best. He was still pulling the the most out of that group. But if he had the legs to just bridge that gap and attack across, I'm sure he would have he would have done it if he could. Yeah. I don't think Wavanat was trying to play some... 4D chess game where he's like, I'll oh, get Kwiatkowski and Co to pull me back and then win the sprint. I think he was he was doing his best. He was just tired. Like they're at their limit at the end of that climb. He's still, I know he's superhuman and all that, but he you got he still is like 15 kilos or 10 kilos heavier than a lot of these guys at the end of a 260 kilometers, 5,000 meters of climbing. It's not like Milano San Remo where. It's not much climbing really at all before Cipressa and Poggio. It's just a gentle climb that doesn't really bother anybody. So, yeah, I think he was pretty tired. I think he did his maximum. He, Whether he got the Sagan 2017 treatment on the descent, I said that at the time, and on the chase, maybe a little bit. I think it would be really disappointing if he did because it's one thing chasing – it's one thing – playing coy and not chasing down a break or an attack where you think there's like 80% chance or 85% chance it's going to get brought back. So why really help out at all uh, and put yourself on the limit because then you're going to lose to the good sprinter in the group. But the minute Alaphilippe crests that climb, it's like if you don't chase properly, if you don't all 100%, 100% fully commit and work together, he will win. So... That's 100% certainty that he will win if you guys play cat and mouse and at all. Like even if for a 30-second period they did, it went out to 9 to 15, 16 seconds. So there's no real like game theory benefit that I could see of trying to sit on. Now whether Rogic and Hiroshi, I think Hiroshi was tired. Rogic, etc. I've already said my piece about that. But yeah, I think I don't think that Kwiatkowski or Full saying I mean, if they could pull more, then they should have. I don't think it was smart not to. Uh, because if you if you got if they work really well and they did have the legs, then they bring back Alaphilippe on the auto uh, the autodrome or whatever it's called, and then you attack Wout Van Aert before the finale, and then he's left with a hard choice of hold. Well, shit, do I close down this attack on my own with twelve hundred meters to go with Kwiatkowski on my wheel if it's Fulsang or Roglic who attacks or he or she, um, and that's probably a good your best chance of winning. But, yeah, it's an interesting finale. I think there's going to be a lot of discussions about what happened and what could have been done differently. You've got to remember in that last, we're talking like a 13, 14-minute period where this is all going on. So it's a lot, and they're all at their limit at the end of six and a half hours or whatever of racing. So it's, they've got no race radios, team radios, making decisions on the road um, is always going to be difficult. So, yeah, I'm a... Obviously, my whole channel is based around analysing things with 2020 hindsight and all the available available information, but I think we just remember that sometimes it's hard to make those decisions on the road, particularly when they couldn't really see where Alaphilippe was. He himself didn't really know where the time gaps were. Um, But yeah, do you 
as a as a Belgian, are you happy with their strategy today, Benji? You know who they were missing, and Patrick Lefebvre is cackling as his quick step rider pulls on the rainbow bands. They were missing three Stevenens to chase down attacks <laughs> instead of Wout van Aert. What a masterstroke from Lefebvre! <laughs> yeah, and the thing is, it, it was indeed one of the reasons that um, that Stevenens. Uh, well, Lefebvre said in an interview while the race was going on that the actual reason that Stevenens didn't sign up was because he didn't want to have to chase Alaphilippe if he decides to attack Belgium. And I guess it was a good decision on that point then for Davenhans because he would have had to. But if we look back at the Belgian tactics, I totally agree that, that it was a good tactic. And they made the, hard, the race hard while controlling it and not making it too hard for Wout van Aert. The master strokes for me were Van Avermaet and Benoit at a certain point. We were... I think just after the Mazzolano in the last circuit, so you've got the first of the two climbs, just after that section, you've got the uh, moment where the group with Nibli and Vanard was up front. Those guys got caught. There was a little group that tried to get away. And at that moment, I was kind of scared because Wout Vanard was in the second group and Van Avermaet had closed down with the, these guys that attacked away, including, I think it was Carapaz as well, in that first group, but Alaphilippe was in that group as well. So I was a bit unsure whether that was actually a good idea, but on paper, it's a great idea to counter an attack with one of your teammates. So Van Avermaet came from the back of the group after almost being dropped, went past that group and reacted to the attacks of the likes of Alaphilippe in that first group that had like five seconds or something. But the issue was in the group behind, there was literally no one that didn't have teammates up front. So at that moment, Fanard is literally in a position where he won't chase because Van Avermaet's up front, but if he doesn't chase, he's never going to be in a position that will lead him to a potential victory. So at that moment, I was kind of scared, but that is when the legend himself came back out of nowhere, Mr. Tijbenot, who is riding 25 kilometers earlier to try and get Pogacar back, was keeping that tempo great. On the Mazzolano itself, he was still pacing. And after the Mazzolano, he came back to that chasing group, brought Van Aert back to the group Van Avermaet. And yeah, that was perfect for me. Honestly, MVP of Belgium, Tijbenot, because of that, genuinely. And I believe the Belgian tactics were as good as it can get without, as you said, having communication in the race, because the way that was set up without communication, it's... It's crazy, genuinely. And I think the only reason that they lost was because Vanard was just not good enough to follow Alaphilippe's acceleration. And that just proves that the best rider won the race and that Wout Vanard is still human, which is also a thing that is kind of important. We need to see a champion lose as well because otherwise it's going to be less effective to Belgians if he starts winning everything. Then after the seventh victory, you're like, well, okay, it was Vanard again, but now I can I can all out still support him in any race that he goes to as a Belgian. So kind of happy about that as well because yeah, you got to be honest. If a, a rider starts winning everything, then it's gonna be uh, less hyped for him to win another race. <laughs> yeah, and we'll have that discussion. I think maybe when we talk about the women's race in a second, just doing a bit of housekeeping. Uh, reading out the full top 10, Alaphilippe first, 24-second advantage over Wout van Aert taking out Silva. Hershey third, the Swiss rider, uh, 
after winning the under-23s World Champs in 2018, already a bronze in the Men's Elite Champs, Kwiatkowski fourth, Fulsang fifth, Trimmels Roglic, the last of that group, sixth. Michael Matthews won the bunch sprint for the third group. Obviously, he had to. Ahead of Valverde, top 10. Sharkman, ninth. Damiano Caruso, 10th. I'm just looking now. Who else we got here? Valgren, 11th. Probably the best result he's had in a, in a while. He just does a good result in the uh, world champs, it seems. And Michael Woods, 12th. Uh, and then I won't go down for the rest of the list. But, yeah, pretty – the riders we expected to see there, uh, all the favourites pretty much in the betting. The first six favourites were the first six favourites except for maybe – yeah, that was pretty much it. So pretty – I mean, the betting market had it pretty much spot on. Um, but just quickly talking about Julian Alaphilippe's Palmares so far. You know, he's won multiple Tour de France stages in the last couple of years. What, three stages in the last two years? Oh, and then, sorry, two stages in 2018 as well. So, like, a five in the last three years, plus yellow last year and this year. World Champs, Road Race, Dauphiné Stage. Uh, La Fletcher Wallonia, and what else has he won? Has he won Liege best on Liege yet? No, I just imagined in my head that he's going to win it. Um, but yeah, he's building up. He's 28 years old. He's won Milano San Remo obviously last year, Strade Classica San Sebastian in 2018. He's building up a really, really nice Palmares, Alaphilippe, and he's probably going to crack the top 100 um, sort of statistically before he turns 30, the way he's going. Uh, and then we'll see how he goes after 30. But, yeah, just really impressive rider. Um, I don't think he's – I don't think last year at the Tour de France that he really – he never really turned into some sort of hybrid climber, like pure climbing guy. He's still that uh, that puncher we know and love, and um, he punched his way to victory today. Uh, any last comments on the men's race, Benji? How about your favourite – your favourite and worst jerseys, quickly. That's always funny. Uh, I forgot to mention that. Your favourite or worst jerseys. Slovenia and Spain are my least favourite. Oh, you hate Slovenia. I like it. I generally like it with the uh, Trivlak, I think the name is, of the uh, Tree Peak Mountain on the middle. Well, it's the we colour palette. Ah, oh, the colour. Well, I think the colour palette. I don't palette like it. Fits. It's it's not a bad color palette. The colors are complementary. The Spain one is a bit meh, indeed. Like you said, it's a bit chaotic, and the way it's made, it's basically made by someone who just painted a few lines on a jersey and thought it was okay. But additionally, the Belgian one, I like it. We've got Colombia. It's really annoying because I always think when a Colombian's up front, that's a Belgian because it has the blue yeah. and the flag in the middle. So that's confusing. Colombia should be illegal. And outside of that, I don't know. Yeah, I agree. I like the I like the British one. I actually like the German one. French one is a bit close to the Italian one. I find it hard to distinguish between the two of them. I prefer the Italian one. Um, other news, Chris Froome, he's just on Twitter. He just congratulates everyone. I don't know why people <laughs> congratulate everyone on Twitter. Like I, I feel like Froome wants to be UCI president when he retires. He should. Um, I think that's sort of what – like. I would never do something like that. I would just send them a text if I'm actually mates with them saying congrats on the big dubski. Uh, I wouldn't really publicize it. But I don't want to talk about those things. I see the worst in people. I don't need to look past seeing them to get all I need. I've built up all my hatreds over the years. 
Benji, that's why I have you here to give me a second breath. Uh, that's a movie quote, by the way, that I've uh, melded for my own benefit. Let me know if you actually get what movie, what movie that is from. But it's kind of, you can see I'm losing my mind a little bit here. On to the women's race. A fantastic men's race in the last 40Ks, but on to the women's race. And five laps of the same circuit, same climbs, um, more crosswind yesterday for the women's race on Saturday. And I think that made a little bit of a difference on the climbs. It made it, it really thinned out the, the bunch early, but yeah. 100, or oh, I don't know why they're saying, um, not, not showing the exact distance, but I think it was like 140 Ks. And favorites were Anna van der Breggen, $2.50 favorite, like very, very heavy favorite, um, especially because Annemiek van Vleuten was, had a broken wrist starting the race, kind of crazy. Yeah, it was 143 kilometers, and nothing happened for like 50 Ks, got to be honest, because it's such a hard course. And the Dutch team, the Dutch women's team, you know, we said it in the preview, I think, they're just so strong. They're like, they're overpowered relative to the the uh, other national teams. And so no one really, a breakaway didn't even go. Uh, initially, I think after about 45Ks, um, after a lap or two or a lap and a half, I think uh, Alison Jackson attacked. She went, Grace Brown went with her. I think Grace Brown got fifth in the ITT, the Australian for Michelin Scott. She looked pretty good in the ITT. Um, they, didn't really, they didn't really get much of a gap. Um, like a, a larger group of riders joined them, but they were kept with a pretty short lead, short, shorter, I think, than even the men's team, uh, the men's race today. And, yeah, I think there were still, like, major nations there, so it was different to the men's race in that there was a German, a Briton. I think Amy Peters got put there for the Dutch team. Uh, Juliette Labouche, somewhere brighter on the French team, and yeah, Norwegians, and even Mavi Garcia went there early, which I was kind of surprised by. A Spanish rider who came, I think, second in Strade behind Van Leuten. She she went into that breakaway, and they got they got only a minute, and but we saw the attrition again. They were getting dropped on that court. Everyone was getting dropped from that breakaway, sort of gradually, and because all the all those riders, all the major nations were kind of there, except really Denmark and even you know even Italy had a rider there, I think. So Longa Borghini's team didn't have to work. Then it was just up to Denmark to chase for Cecily Trupp-Ludwig, who was, I think, like third favourite, particularly after her win in Giro d'Emilia. Um, and, yeah, they, <laughs> they didn't really do a very good job chasing that breakaway. The break gained like two minutes kept going out. Um, but then I think a Eugenia Bujak for Slovenia tried to bridge across. And it was kind of weird, right, because the Dutch team had Amy Peters in that break. The break is still there like 40Ks, 35Ks later with 50Ks to go. And it seemed that the favourites just wanted to ride at the front of the peloton anyway. Um, I saw Britain were riding. Um, even though they had Alice Barnes, I think, in the break. Um, oh, no, sorry, Barnes actually had been dropped, so that's why it makes sense. I was wondering at the time, but now I'm remembering. They were, Britain went to the front and they had Diagnan there. Diagnan was my pick for the right to win the race. Um, maybe in hindsight it's a little bit too hard compared to J.P. Plouet and La Course. But, yeah, she went to the front and you could see the crosswind, right, because 
Great Britain had pretty much tried to put everyone in the gutter chasing this break. They had they were on like the far left hand side of the road from their perspective, and they were leaving just enough space for Diagnan. And you could see the wind when they cut to the flags on the side of the road. There was an Italian flag in particular on that one of the climbs where um, I think it was the the Matolana climb, the which yeah you could just the crosswind, and that's why. It was kind of smart for Britain to chase in that way because at least if you're going to chase and commit your domestiques, you're at least putting everyone else into difficulty except for your favourite, Diagnan, who was getting a bit of a draft. Um, but the main move was on the Gattestown and a climb. I think before then the Dutch women had kind of taken turns pacing, like Van der Breggen, um, I think, had attacked before. And like on the Gallisterna, she, but I didn't really see it as an attack. I just saw it as her increasing the pace. Um, I think she was followed by Nui Adoma. She, that they brought the gap down to like 18 seconds. And I think another Dutch rider was, was pacing for them as well. And the, the last, I think the fourth time up to Shima Gallisterna, so not the last lap, uh, but still the, the final climb of the day, Mariana Voss went on the front. And just started ripping it. And were you surprised, Benji, that Voss, I guess, decided that today she was not going to be the one that was going to be winning world champs? Because it's kind of like it seems a bit ridiculous to say that for world championships that oh well they just the Dutch women get in a room in the morning and decide okay who's going to win today. But I guess they kind of they kind of are by having Voss go on the front there at the base of that climb before Van Vleuten and Van der Breggen have been. Use she's kind of yeah she is sacrificing her chances. Uh, like were you surprised to see that? Well, you've got a situation, a luxury situation as the Netherlands that you've got multiple riders that could be your leader here. So as you say, yeah, you have to have a bit of a plan of of a hierarchy between the riders because otherwise you're going to have a situation where you've got three riders in the group, one other person starts to attack, and none of your teammates will try and chase that. So. You have to have some hierarchy before the race. They probably have spoken about it to each other. And I think Anna van der Breggen is actually in her last two years as a cyclist. I think at the end of 2021, she's uh, retiring and becoming a director of sport chief. So she's staying in the sport. But maybe that led into this discussion into the fact that Marielle Voss has won it before. Van der Breggen, well, this is just an extra thing on her, on her palmares at that point to have someone work for Van der Breggen. And Additionally, I, f- I still think that they had some weird strategies in the Netherlands because just a moment later, when you had, well, basically, they started mashing as the Netherlands on that climb, and we all knew that an attack was going to come, and it came from the person we were most expecting it at that point because I did not expect too much for, from Van Vleuten, maybe because of that injury. Maybe I was treating that injury a bit too harsh because during the race, it seemed to affect her only a little bit. Which means that, well, I guess I'm, I'm not sure how that feels riding with. Uh, well, was it a broken or was it? I think it was a, a broken wrist actually, but I, I'm not totally percent sure. So, let's say a fractured wrist for now until we uh, actually read up yeah, on the fact. Yeah, cooked wrist. Okay, a cooked, cooked wrist. Technical term. Yeah. yeah, cooked. Okay, so yeah, we saw an attack by Van der Breggen, and it was from the back of the group. So you've got a situation where. That group had the likes of Utrecht Ludwig, 
I think Dagnan was not 100% there. Dagnan got dropped when Van, yes. got, when Van Vluten pulled really hard after yeah. Voss. Dagnan got distanced, and it was pretty much just Longo Borghini, Ludwig, um, Van Vluten, and, and Anna van der Breggen in that group. Yeah, yeah but, go on, Benji. Sorry, cut you off. Yeah, but you're right. You're good to cut me off there just to have the facts straight. But at that point, you had that attack for Van der Breggen at the back of the group, flying past everyone, but to my surprise, the person that was able to respond was her own teammate. We saw Utrecht Ludwig trying a little bit, but she had to uh, sit down straight again. Longo Borghini tried on the left end of the road, but she was unable to close that down. But Von Vleuten actually tried to respond to Van der Breggen, which was the weirdest thing for me, because you try and launch Van der Breggen first, and then you try and ride towards her, and basically you have Longo Borghini in your wheel. So... You think that that was a slight mistake of the Netherlands? That maybe Van Vleuten was thinking about herself for a tiny bit too much at that moment? Oh, I think I think AVV was attacking on that climb. I don't think that was a lead-out for Van der Breggen. Like, if, Van, if she dropped everyone and Van der Breggen got dropped too, I think that would have been part of her plan as well. And, yeah, I think she was kind of surprised that Anna Van der Breggen attacked at the time. That she did, and she looked kind of surprised when Van der Breggen went past on her left, and she kept chasing her. Um, maybe she was blocking. I'm not sure. I swear it's hard to say, but I feel like AVV, like that wasn't the plan actually for Van der Breggen to attack there. But that was with like oof, well over 40 k's to go, and eventually Van Vleuten pretty much did start to like. I don't think Van Vleuten was fading at all on that climb. Um, I just think Van der Breggen was on a, a really, really good level. And she, had, she went over onto the plateau and opened up a pretty big gap. It already went out to like 25 seconds. You could see, well, okay, Longa Borghini is not, not as good at climbs as Van Vleuten or Van der Breggen. Ludwig probably isn't either. Ludwig not really going to help too much on the flats. Um, and they weren't really making any inroads there, and AVV was sitting up at that point and sitting on. So Van der Breggen, the woman who just won the individual time trial world championship, goes clear on her own. And it was it was kind of weird, right, because Tana Pogaccia, Tour de France winner, goes clear in the men's race, get a, gets a 25-second gap. At, at no point did I think he was going to win. I thought he was at 100% chance he was going to get brought back, and... The opposite was the case. The minute Van der Breggen had 10 seconds, I thought this race is over. Just because when you when you think about the dynamic of what is happening behind her, in the, the second strongest rider in the race is the rider that won't chase her. The only rider in the world that could bring her back is Van Vleuten, who was sitting on. The yeah, Longo Borghini is going to lose time every lap on Van der Breggen riding on the front on the climbs, and maybe if she makes back a few seconds here or there on the descent, are on the plateau, it's not going to be enough to close that gap down. Um, and over the course of 40 kilometres head-to-head, Van der Breggen is going to keep extending that gap. And same with Ludwig as well. Um, and eventually I think a, a larger chase formed we, with Lippert, Nui Adoma, Diagnan and Ludwig. But that, that wasn't really a good thing because that suggested that Longo Borghini and Ludwig had... Um, kind of waited for those other riders to catch them. That meant that the gap was able to go out to over like two minutes or so. And, yeah, it was done at that point. 
uh, Van der Breggen. They were never going to bring her back unless she had a mechanical or crash or something. There was a pretty sick helicopter shot of her on the ridge line. Looked really good. I think there was the same shot today with Philippe. Specialized marketers, marketing team, must be their wet dream what happened on the uh, this World Championships weekend. And yeah, congrats to Anna van der Breggen TTing away with 40Ks to go, the second year in a row that a Dutch woman has TTed away solo. I guess Van Vleuten did it from 100Ks last year, taking out another Dutch woman's World Championships victory after winning the World Champs ITT, after winning the Giro Rosa. And I've got to admit, I was kind of questioning Van der Breggen's form, um, particularly before the Giro Rosa, and I don't think I was wrong when I said that I thought Van Vleuten was going to win Giro Rosa easily, GC, uh, and that crash affected that. I still think that was going to happen. Um, I did think Daigert was also going to win the World Champs ITT, but Van der Breggen showed why she should have been favourite for the road race today, and I don't know how much the wrist affected Van Vleuten probably not like I don't think it really would have changed the race result even if Van Vleuten was 100% healthy because AVV was giving it the max on that climb with 42k's to go and Van der Breggen just stepped off her and put a big big gap into all the other favorites so yeah she looks in magic form kind of crazy that she was going to retire I think at the end of this year but is only now retiring at the end of 2021 or says she is retiring then because the Olympics got moved, and her big goal was the uh, the Olympics road race, I think, winning gold there. And obviously, whoever's the leader of the Dutch women's team is going to be the heavy favourite for that even next year. Uh, I don't see anyone usurping them, although I've got to look at the uh, I've got to look at the profile because maybe Lizzie Dignan is she's in magic form too, and Lippert and Co. But, yes, yeah, it's, it's such a strong team because now, that being said, going now to the minor placings, Van Vleuten and Longo Borghini, well, Longo Borghini had pretty much attacked and dropped uh, Ludwig Lippert and I think Nui Adoma. And they then, Longo Borghini rode pretty strong actually, given that she was pretty much solo chasing Van der Breggen. Um, she held the gap at like a minute for a, a little bit, but yeah, she just never was going to be able to match like the TT of Van der Breggen. And she had Annemie Van Vleuten on her wheel the whole time. But yeah, what happened? In the sprint, Benji, because there's actually a bit more controversy there. It's kind of gone under the radar a bit, but I was up in arms about it. I thought it was outrageous. Um, but what happened in the sprint for the miners um, with the whole road wide open? Yeah, I found it pretty outrageous as well. And the fact is that you've got that second and third person in the reins, which is Longo Borghini and Von Vleuten, trying to sprint for the silver medal here. And you've got a sprint of two people in a group of two. That means that... Well, the following rules that apply to what happened are a bit harsh. And let me dive into it. So we've got a situation where Longo Borghini is at the front and she starts a sprint pretty early on, but she puts a line from the barriers a bit diagonal towards the middle, her sprinting line. So she was basically sprinting towards the middle of the road when the sprint started. And then von Vleuten was clever enough to see that there was a gap enough to go through on the right side, like plenty enough, like two Van Vleuten's could gap. conquer at that big, moment. Big gap. And then suddenly, Longo Borghini deviates from her line and basically changes her line diagonally to the barriers again. So she's basically cutting off Van Vleuten, but at that point, Van Vleuten is next to her. And uh, it got a bit dirty when she actually started using her elbow to try and keep Van Vleuten behind her. So 
to me, this was, I don't want to say it because it's annoying to talk about, but it feels a bit like that stage in Polonia that we don't want to talk about where there an accident happened with similar, well, things happening, causing that accident. I think that Van Vleuten could have been in the barriers here if, if Longo Borghini did it a tiny bit more and she shouldn't have done it. It's not allowed to do so, deviating from your line, and definitely not if you endanger a rider with your elbow afterwards. So in general, the rule applies that you deviated from your line. So what can you get from that? On paper, that is a deviation, and some Swiss francs, uh, well, money that you have to pay to the UCI. But the main issue is you've got two people in a group, a sprint à deux, and she was losing that sprint to Van Vleuten at the end. So if you relegate Longoborghini here, you're going to punish her to the last position in the group that she was in. So if you relegate her, she's still third. So if you've got literally no rule that outside of Swiss franc fines punishes Longoborghini here, and I think that's a, a plot hole in the UCI rules, to be honest. Well, I guess there's that if it was like really, really egregious, she would get she could be fully disqualified from the race. I'm not sure it was that bad. But yeah, apart from a small financial penalty, I thought it was pretty egregious though because she started flush on the right-hand barriers and the whole expanse of the road was on her left-hand side. She started a sprint and then sprinted to the middle and she opened up a gap. I'm not, it's not like, this is not a Wout van Aert Sagan gap. We're talking like five, four rider width. It looked it was a really big gap at points, and she was like almost going towards the middle of the road. That was the direction Longa Borghini was going, and which didn't make sense as well, by the way, because Van Vleuten couldn't put any pressure through her left wrist, so she couldn't sprint in the left direction. Um, so, yeah, that was a bit strange. I feel like Van Vleuten only had one option, which was like she could only really sprint to the right hand side. So Van Vleuten goes this, the quicker line. The quickest way to the line, which was it was I think maybe slightly bending to the right hand side, and she goes on the barriers towards the barriers, and Blonga Borghini just ducked in on her and kept ducking in on her, and you could see it, you could see it happening and coming front on. You could see that Blonga Borghini knew that she'd started a sprint too early, and Van Leuten was coming, going to come past her, and um, yeah, she made a mistake, Blonga Borghini starting a sprint too early. Um, she probably had a she did have a way better snap for 50, 75 meters than Hannah van Vleuten, who's also you know she's got that broken wrist. And um, I'm glad that van Vleuten got second and got the silver medal. Um, but yeah, I don't really have a solution for. I feel like if van Vleuten had crashed, especially because she did flare the elbow, even made contact with her left arm, I think, I think if van Vleuten had crashed, she would have been disqualified completely, and then it would have been a Dutch one, two, three because Mariana Vos then won the bunch sprint. From the third group, coming fourth, ahead of uh, Liana Lippert, Dagnan sixth, Katrina Nuyadoma seventh, Cecily Utrup Ludwig eighth, Lisa Brenau for Germany tenth, uh, ninth, sorry, two Germans in the top ten as well, and Marlon Reusser for Switzerland coming tenth. So after her good performance in the ITT, so. Yeah, a bit of a shame seeing that happen in the minor placings, but hats off once again to Anna van der Bregen. Uh, I do want to report on a bit of news that happened in the, the women's cycling world, and that was the 
it was announced that the Giro Rosa is not going to be a world tour race next year. Um, I think it's downgraded to like a pro cycling race. And maybe I've got a controversial opinion about this, but I think that's a good thing because don't try and break out, sorry, don't try and fix the conditions with the race organizer that constantly disappoints you and doesn't do the right thing. It's like trying to fix the conditions in a prison that you shouldn't really be imprisoned in at all when you should be breaking out of the prison and trying to do something differently. And I know I feel like with women's cycling, tinkering around the edges and just trying to make marginal improvements with, say, the Giro Rosa organisers who for years treated the riders like shit all the way from hotel rooms that are just terrible, the food, everything like is apparently really bad year year in, year out. But it was all okay because at least there's like this big one-week stage race. And I think this year there was none of that. There's no live coverage at all. Uh, like GCN Racing, or GCN, sorry, the uh, Race Pass rather, pretty sure they wanted to show live coverage of the event and they literally couldn't because the host organiser or race or whatever didn't pay for it and organise that even though they're required to as a world tour race. So whether it's that and them failing to do that and the UCI giving them a please explain, they said, well, fuck you, then we're just going to be a pro race and we don't have to show you live coverage then. Or whether they saw that ASO announced the a proper women's Tour de France or a one-week stage race or something starting in 2022 and they saw the writing on the wall that, well, we're not even going to be the biggest women's stage race, so why even bother? I'm not sure. I'm sure I don't doubt that the Giro Rosa organisers are cash-strapped. They, prob- like, they probably are. Um, if they were hiding pots of gold that they were making from the race every year, which they were then refusing to reinvest, I'd be very, very surprised. Um, I think it's just they've clearly shown, though, that they are incapable of making it sustainable, profitable, or good for the riders long-term hosting that race. Um, and maybe this isn't the place for me to detail my extensive thoughts on how to market women's cycling better and what needs to happen with the Women's World Tour. That being said, I think this should be part of the, an impetus or a good trigger for really thinking outside the box about, okay, do we want to re- just try and follow the broken economics of men's cycling, which has very little paper mache covering up the cracks uh, called the Tour de France, where all the money is made that covers up the cracks in what is still a broken economic model for men's cycling. So the women's racing, unfortunately, doesn't have that big race that can paper over those cracks. So you've got these races coming in and out each year, which you know it's the, the calendar changes drastically from year to year. It's very hard to follow, even if you are trying to follow the sport. I tried to cover the Giro. We tried to cover the Giro Rosa. It was almost impossible to cover it. Not only because it was at the same time as the Tour de France, which is a problem in itself, but yeah, trying to find coverage was fucking impossible as well in a timely fashion. Um, so that that wasn't helpful as well. So really, a lot of things need to change, and I think they need to copy other sports that have done that have sustainable women's sports. Copy them rather than trying to copy men's cycling badly. Look to golf, look to tennis, um, look to the UFC, 
see what they've done and how they have women now getting paid. I think average salary of a um, sort of pro golfer on the on the circuit now, like a, a proper pro golfer on the circuit, female golfer is like ooh, 140,000 US dollars. It's pretty decent. Female tennis players as well in top 50, top 100, they're, they're pros. They're, they're professional. They're able to make a living. They don't need a second job. Uh, I know they're different sports, but there's things to be learnt from all those sports and you can put them into a cycling context. Like maybe given that they don't have the history, there has been no female Tour de France. There's been no, for a long time, a female three-week Italian, well, there's never been a female three-week Italian stage race. Euro Rosa, I think, started in the 80s. Why not start a women's world tour circuit in countries where you can stream the race live by 4G? That cuts the race cost down by so much when you don't need a satellite relay helicopter. In So you pick those countries. Pick where it's really cheap to run the event and make sure it's live streamed. And then obviously the UCI as well. I mean... Um, Elizabeth Banks wrote an article in Cycling News about how the UCI needs to to do something, and yeah, a lot of, the UCI needs to do something, but a lot of people don't really elucidate what that something is. And the UCI needs to subsidise some sort of race program, which and I know people don't like this because they think the UCI UCI fucks everything up, but they need to subsidise a race program that the UCI owns the races or is a proper stakeholder in the races because. Otherwise, you're just going to have race organisers going in and out, in and out, in and out, and there's no stable structure. Whereas, like F1, they own, they sort of control the races and the whole circ and the whole program and calendar. Same thing needs to happen for the women's world tour in affordable countries. Ensure live streaming, etc. And UCI is going to have to subsidise it. Now, maybe they don't have the money. I'm not sure, but if you do that for two to three years, you make sure it's all live streamed. The, the, the female riders have to. Take ownership of it as well. Um, it's not fair that they have to promote their own sport as much as they do on an individual level instead of just riding. Like no one asks Greg Van Avermaet to share the link of where to watch his race that weekend. That's not fair, but life isn't fair and it's the reality. So they also need to, when these live streams or live coverage is happening, if every single female rider, shared a swipe up link of that or shared a link of it prior to the race on social media 24 hours before and then four hours before if every team did that if every stakeholder in women's cycling did that and every participant a lot of people would be watching the races by default just by that that reach like a lot of these riders have pretty healthy social media accounts now and yeah as i said no one's asking peter sagan to do that for his races but it's just something i don't really think about what's fair or not. I just think that would work. Um, so that needs to be part of it as well. But I've rambled on too long about uh, the Giro Rose. I just had to get that off my chest because, yeah, that's some big news. Um, people were saying it was really disappointing. And I think turn it around and say, what can we do differently? Is this actually the start of something we can do or should be, should instigate us doing something differently and moving into a positive direction, getting rid of this race that, seems to have problems and annoy us every year. But hey, Benji, any last thoughts on um, the Women's World Championships or would you like to respond to it? Do I miss anything or do you disagree with what I was saying? I totally agree with you, but I do want to uh, bring up two more points. Firstly, that in the race itself, we had a triple Ludwig. Uh, she was using electronic shifters. And, well, she had a bit of a problem in the last lap 
that's she started the climb and her electronic shift as the battery was dead on the climb and in the descent she was stuck on a very high gear so well a lot of people were sparking again towards the uh oh no innovation see what the problems are in cycling when you use electronic stuff i personally believe that innovation is always good if it's used in the in the right way so this is basically just a a mistake a human mistake by someone that should have made sure that those shifters were in full battery apparently they were so i'm not sure what went wrong i'm curious if there's going to be research behind that in uh, in the danish federation because it's a pretty big issue and it's a a bit of a fuck up in my honest opinion so uh, that's a topic i wanted to uh, put in hand and afterwards i'd like to talk about the flanders 2021 for a short period but what's your opinion on the electronic shifters issue here Oh, well, if they were fully charged, she might have just lent her bike against a wall and had it shifting constantly, um, and that burnt through the battery. Um, I don't know. Maybe it was a dud battery, but, yeah, not great. And I know you're trying to start a rim brake versus disc debate or an electronic versus mechanical debate here, Benji, but we're not going to do that. We're going to move on. Um, but, yeah, that's the World Championships. that have come and gone in just a few days. Kind of crazy. I do – got to say I do miss – I do miss having the juniors and the under-23s. It, it felt very different not having those races. Uh, I think it was a real shame not having them. Um, still great we could have a world champs. Not complaining about that. But, yeah, just it did make me realise how much I miss them, seeing the young guns coming up. Uh, and just to recap, who won Who won what? Anna van der Breggen won gold in the ITT and the road race. Filippo Ganna won gold in the men's ITT and... Julian Philippe took gold in the men's road race. So some big names, some big favourites winning. No massive surprises at all, actually. Pretty much the favourite for every event won, except Wavanaut was the favourite and Nala Philippe was the second favourite for the road race. But, yeah, Flanders 2021, The obviously there's going to be a big Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast meetup at Benji's house. I know you're <laughs> excited about it, Benji. What What is the parkour? I haven't even looked at it. So basically, you start at the coast for the time trial in Knokkeheist, and you move towards Bruges. Knokkeheist, try that. No, I'm good. <laughs> so it's a time trial that's basically flat. There's not too much of that in it. And what is the most important profile, obviously, is the road race as well. And that is going to be a Flanders-style race. We've got plenty of hills in the nearby neighborhood of uh, Leuven. So you start in Antwerp and you go to the south. You conquer a few hills, some more known, some less known. It's not the known Cobble Classics uh, climbs that you would expect. So the Paterberg or the Quadamont, it's more, uh, yeah, I don't even know the names. They're, they're pretty much unknown and hardly used in races, but it's going to be quite hard because the uh, Denevels, the uh, height meters, it's again above 2,500 meters. So it's not going to be an easy world championships. And I think it's going to be great for the uh, classics riders. So they're basically trying to get a Belgian to win. It's it's pretty obvious, but I just want to point it out as well as a Belgian that next year, Belgians win on both the time trial and the road race, and there's nothing you can do about it. How long is the time trial? I, I genuinely don't even know. I think it's 38 kilometers. Okay. Know. Interesting. Yeah, well, that just sounds to me like Wolf well, against Matthew van der Poel in the road race, which is, uh, yeah, that'll be pretty exciting. I'm glad it's in it's in Belgium. Obviously, you'll be you literally live there, and um, 
I'm going to be in Europe next year, so I'll be at the World Champs. Uh, but that's all from us today, I think. We've gone long, on long enough. Crazy that the World Champs has already already been here and in such a weird order as well, straight after the Tour de France. And I think we'll have a little, we have a little gap, I believe, now for a couple of days um, until the Bing Bang Tour on the 29th. Well, not even a couple of days. That's in on the 29th, starting on Tuesday. Uh, is that your that's Benji's home stage race? I think I actually really yeah, I love the house. I love the Bing Bang Tour. Benji was trying to do it all on his own, and I said, "Hey, hey, hey, I'll do it too." Because yeah, he's worried that I my uh, pronunciation of all the stages was going to be so bad that we'd get our ratings and reviews destroyed on Apple Podcasts, which, <laughs> by the way, are nearly at a thousand, which is just insane. Um, thanks for all the ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. Crazy, what a nice segue that was. But yeah. Lead us out, Benji. World champs done. Jala Philippe in, in rainbow pans. I can't wait to see what, what Quickstep do with it. I'm, I back. I, I trust Quickstep to do his, his rainbow bands justice. Usually, this is the end of the season, usually, and that is kind of weird to think about. World Championships is often the race that is past the Vuelta and just before in Lombardia and such. But this year, it's very different. We've got one Grand Tour done, two to go. We've got classics on the menu. In the next two months, it's going to be a crazy period. And despite the World Championships already happening, yeah, we're going to see Alaphilippe in the World Championships very soon, which is often not the case when it's at the end of the season because you've got a bit of a gap before the races that suit that rider starts the next season usually. But, well, I'm looking forward to it. I hope you are as well. Bing Bang Tour coming up, Giro after that. Plenty of races to come. And ciao.